Well, let me welcome you to our live stream service this morning under a very unusual set of circumstances. I'm joined here by David and Greg and a couple of guys up top making sure that the video works well and a handful of other folks that you'll see me looking at. But other than that, the room is largely empty and uh, will take a bit of getting used to. But let me take a few moments uh, at least to elaborate on the decision that was made by this church's leadership uh, this past Friday. And our decision was to comply with our governor's request, uh, which has now become a mandate uh, that we not meet in gatherings larger than a hundred people. That goes for just about everyone. And our typical gathering here of late has been pushing three times that amount. But let me read to you a couple of passages uh, that will help answer the question as to why we would make an accommodation like this. Uh, so many times as Christians we we, we know what we're doing, but it's important to know the why behind it, especially in a situation like this. This is a, a big move. This is a Sunday that I think I'll remember for the rest of my life. You may as well. But in Romans 13, this is what Paul the Apostle tells us. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So based on this passage of, of Scripture, we make our decision because we honor our local government, which God put in place and for our well-being. Secondly, we make this decision because of love for our neighbor. These things were included in the memo that we sent out on Friday. But just to think through this, um, on one occasion a scribe had asked Jesus, what is the most important commandment of all? And Jesus answered him with two. He said, the most important is this in Mark 12, you shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. We've got no question as to what Jesus would tell us in answer to that question. Now, because this virus is a communicable disease, and because there are some that are more at risk than others, we must be mindful of the well-being of others, not just ourselves. And if you recall the situation where a lawyer came to Jesus, this is Luke 10, with the specific question, who is my neighbor? Jesus didn't answer him directly. He gave him this very long parable we know as the, the parable of the Good Samaritan where a man fell among thieves. He was in a bad way and three people crossed paths with this guy. Two of them kept going. One of them helped him. And Jesus ends the parable by putting a question back to the man who said, who is my neighbor by saying who in this story was neighbor to him? So if you want to look at it that way, we're not only concerned about other people's germs during all this, but we need to be concerned with our own germs that we might not even know we have, and we might inadvertently spread to someone else not knowing that we've even done so. And it's possible that this gets a lot worse before it gets better. So out of motivation for honor and government out of motivation of love and being a neighbor to others, we've made these decisions. So that's the basis for this. And it's a difficult decision to make, not because we're reluctant to make the decision. It's the right thing to do, and we know that. But in making this decision, it's going to be difficult to communicate this way for long. Um... If I had a nickel for every time someone asked me, is it hard to stand up in front of a big group of people while they're watching you and speak, uh, I could buy the folks in this room maybe something off the dollar menu. But I've never had anybody ask me if it was difficult to stand in front of a room of empty of people and do the same thing. And I'm here to say that this is probably weirder. 
but we'll get through it because we want to and because we have to. Um, the whole exercise, I'm thinking, might actually be useful in helping us to understand that church has always been and will always continue to be an analog reality, not a digital reality. Um, when God met with Adam and Eve in the garden, it wasn't through FaceTime or Skype connection or, or YouTube live stream. They were together face to face. And Wake Chapel's been live streaming its services for a long time now. But the way we're live streaming today is going to be temporary. We don't know when this will end, but we need to think of it as that. Up until now, we've used it for a lot of different reasons and good reasons. People that can't be here, people that are on vacation, people that are traveling for work. Uh, but just like I use FaceTime to see my family when I'm away for some reason... Um, my real desire is to get back home to them and to see them face to face, eye to eye, to hold them in my arms. I'm extremely grateful for FaceTime. I'm extremely grateful for a live stream. I, I'm more glad and happy for it today than I've ever been in my life. But the people of God are need, going to need to gather together unlike this at some point. That's why this coming week we'll be busy working on a way for you to meet electronically with your Sunday school classes uh, for the purpose of being able to share prayer requests, even commenting on the lesson. It'll be similar to this, but along the side there'll be a, a, a rolling uh, chat as people can post up things and others can read them. We've got a lot of work to standardize this among our Sunday school classes, but that's our task this week so that by next week we not only meet here at 1030 but we can meet at 915 you and your homes together with your teachers perhaps in their homes that's going to be our task and we'll be working hard to make that happen because this is going to help with the thing that we're going to all need to keep in our mind and in our prayers and that is the word faithfulness because at the end of the day, when we meet our Lord, it's not going to be anything other than faithfulness that's going to get us the good and faithful servant. Well done. Not successful or efficient or streamlined or any of those other things. We're going to need to take a fresh look at how faithfulness looks under a global pandemic. I didn't know if I'd ever say those words before. But that's the place where we now live. Faithfulness will be not forsaking the assembling of the saints just because we've had to change things up. You might get comfortable on your couch watching church. Um, that's not a bad thing. But we'll need to resume our regularly scheduled things in time. We'll need to be faithfulness in prayer. We'll need to be faithfulness in study. We'll be need to be faithful in building up one another and we'll need to be faithful in our giving if you've been with us long enough to get to know me over the past 18 months I'm not at all comfortable talking about money and giving um, completely comfortable teaching through passages where that is given to us in scripture and we're held accountable um, but we've got a host of options to be able to do that. There's online giving. Some of you mail your check in. Some of you have your broker do that for you and they pay for the stamp. The only one thing we won't be able to do for a while now is pass a plate. Um, we wouldn't drive to your house and do that. But we're going to need to be faithful. And there's one other thing before I have you turn in your Bibles and we get to our message. All this is preliminary. We need to be reminded that this isn't new. It's new to us, but it's not new. Things like this have happened over history. Things a lot worse. And in 1 Thessalonians, I find this as an encouragement. This is from Paul. He says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, 
in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. And all we need to do is think about Paul, the same guy that wrote Romans, who was telling us to submit to our government, the same government that was responsible for tearing him away from his brothers that he wanted to see face to face, and the same government that was responsible for taking him out of this world. We've got a lot of of distance to go before we ever find ourselves in a place where we cannot live cooperatively with all people as far as is possible. So we're glad to be able to do what we're doing. And with eagerness and with great desire, we'll count the days until we can see each other face to face. So, I hope you have your Bible with you. And uh, I guess you would. You're in your homes, most of you. If not, maybe you left your Bible here. Um, I hope not. But let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. And this is verses 13 through 20. This is still Missions Month. We've still got the flags hanging here. And uh, I had thought through what to say today, late in the week when things were changing rapidly. But I decided just to go ahead with the message I'd been working on that was planned for this day. Um, I'm hoping that over the years, March will not only be a time that we focus our attention on missions, but that we focus uh, our attention and encourage one another in the basics of Christianity. You really can't get any more basic uh, than the idea of missions, being that each child of God is, is part of the Great Commission And that carrying the gospel to those who don't know it, whether that be across the globe or across the street, it's all the same. We are missionaries. And to carry on in that idea, what I'd planned to do, which had some uh, preparatory work involved with a business meeting that we would be having next week, which is likely to be postponed. Uh, It doesn't mean that we can't begin to plow and cultivate this ground already by just encouraging ourselves in the basics. Asking ourselves big questions like, what are we doing and why are we doing it? What is the church's purpose? Why does the church gather? Why are we gathering this morning even through live stream or the handful of us that are in this building? Even under the cloud of a global pandemic, are all these things the same? are the the basic reasons why we are a church and why the church has been gathered and will continue to gather. Has that changed at all? I think the answer to that is a resounding no. So let me read to you our passage. We'll pray and then we'll put some thoughts together here. But this is Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through verse 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what do people say that the Son of Man is? Or who do they say? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your eternal word. We thank you for your promises that are never broken. We thank you for your mercy that was new this morning. We thank you not only for your sovereignty, but your providence over all things. We thank you for live stream. We thank you for a church gathered. And we thank you for the purpose, the privilege to worship in your name 
to consider your word and to seek to obey it. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, the passage we just read is a lengthy passage, a famous passage, uh, a passage on which much ink has been spilt. Many dissertations have been written on even the small pieces of it, like uh, what is the meaning of Peter and the, the, the name meaning rock? What is binding and loosening? What is the gates of hell? And uh, so on and so forth. Those things are important, and I would love to spend all the time I had to explain them, but not today. Today we want to focus on those simple words, I will build my church. And that's the answer to the question, why do we do any of this? Because Jesus will build his church. He's building his church. His church is under construction. We're headed toward a final gathering. So let's explore these things. If we're asking ourselves what is meant by I will build this church, one of the better places to go to get started would be to listen to the man Jesus is speaking to. And that would have been Peter himself. Disciples are there as well, but he's speaking to Peter. And Peter would, in his first letter, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, he's carrying on the language of building. Jesus said, I would build my church. He's talking about building a spiritual house with living stones, which is Christians, you and I. Here's what he says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's what I would highlight. That's who you are. And that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I'd underline that too. That's what you're to do. That's why he's gathered you for his own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10. Once you were not a people gathered, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have mercy. So, the pattern here, just by combine, combining two passages, is a gathering of people. God's doing the gathering. The gathering is for himself to glorify him for who he is and what he's done. And the thing about this is that it's not at all unique to this passage. In fact, we're just looking at something that's a common thread throughout the entire Bible. And uh, I thought it'd probably be best just to rehearse through our mind. Most of us are familiar with these things. But rather than to uh, make notes, let's just use our imagination. And by the way, this isn't one of those messages where you'll have a, a lot of points numbered uh, to take and fit into your... This is just something, hopefully, to cause us to think, to inspire our imagination, but to give us a renewed hope, security, and a purpose in what we're doing. Even though the time period when we're doing these things uh, is something I don't know that any of us in our generation have any reference point for. Gathering and scattering is what we see here. And we've already made mention of it. But in the Garden of Eden, when God put two people in a garden... He walked with them in the cool of the evening. He'd gathered them together for his own purpose, a people, just two of them that were all his own, so that through them they could reflect his glory. Now, that didn't last very long, because when sin came into the picture, that was scattered, wasn't it? And a flaming sword was put at the, the, the edge of the garden to make sure they never came back. Not the same way. So that's the first round of gathering and scattering. Fast forward the clock to Noah and his family. You've got a group of people. The earth is full at this point. At least in this area that is spoken of. And the people's hearts and minds are on evil continually. So God gathers a group of eight people in a boat called an ark with specific plans how to build it to save them while he hits the reset button on the whole planet and destroys them for their willful 
wickedness, a scattering. And then you go even further, you've got a Tower of Babel, which was a gathering, but not, not for God's purposes, but for man's purposes, to build a tower up to the, the stars uh, in the heavens, to, to worship things that God had created. So purposefully, he scattered that gathering by confounding their languages so that it wouldn't get out of hand. When you get to Deuteronomy 4, and then in chapter 9, you can look at this later as your homework, and there are other places to see this, but Deuteronomy is, is more concise in describing how once God had put together a, a people that were His people, He was their God, and had given them His law to separate them from the rest of the people on the planet. So through them, He could bless the rest of the world. He had gathered them. And through a long, dramatic uh, sequence of events, in, including an exodus out of Egypt and a gathering in the wilderness. And it's interesting the, the, the language used. Let my people go so that they can worship me out in the wilderness. And then a, a, a temple, actually a tabernacle at that point, was constructed to be a place where God would meet with them. And they would move it from different places. Under a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, God's people gathered. But by the time you get to Deuteronomy 9, there's a description of even during the period of giving of that law, there's this golden calf that was made. And then the sentence of wandering for 40 years because of their disobedience. So what you see is an attempt at gathering and scattering at the same time. Relationally, they're scattered even though geographically they may be gathered. And it seems to get more and more complicated. Even at the point where they enter the promised land after conquest, they had difficulty pushing out the inhabitants and began to splinter and, and, and fracture. Some are living in dens and caves, all described throughout the period of the judges. But under one king, the first one wasn't so hot, the second one, David, a man after God's own heart, decided to build for God a permanent dwelling place. That would be the, the temple. But he wouldn't actually get it done, though he put the plans together and got it started. His son Solomon would build a temple. And inside the Holy of Holies within that temple, above the Ark of the Covenant, the Spirit of God would dwell again and gather His people in their specific land to be His people. He was to be their God. David got it started, but he wasn't the one to build the house for the Lord. And then we keep reading the kingdom splits. Idolatry is a big problem because of sin in two separate waves. God's people are truly scattered over the earth and far in, in, in the, the period of the exile. And even then, God still works with them and through pagan kings brings some of them back. Another gathering. And they find the book of the law. and Ezra reads it in front of everybody. And they're all agreed. You will be our God. We'll be your people. But then there's that vision of uh, the prophet. Where in his vision, the glory of the Lord departs from over top of the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, Holy of Holies. Descends down over the Kidron Valley and disappears for 400 years. A scattering of silence, as it were. But then you have this John, known as the baptizer, who breaks that silence by introducing the Lamb of God who'd take away the sin of the world. And though many people missed it, if anyone paid attention, this Lamb of God was actually the seed of David. A descendant, qualified to perhaps do what David was not able to do himself. Jesus spent time here on earth, three years of public ministry. But as the Lamb of God, He died a sacrificial death at the hand of the Romans, instigated by the Jews, and paid once for all the sin debt of the entire world, those among whom God had chosen for Himself. 
And the men who were standing there when he ascended into heaven, the eleven of them, heard the great commission that we've been discussing quite a bit here during missions month. And he left them there. Shortly after that, the gift of the Holy Spirit would be given. And shortly after that, a sermon would be preached. And 3,000 souls would be gathered and added to the church. There's your gathering. And before you know what's next, the Gentiles are gathered in on this. That veil of the temple had been rent. All of those things didn't matter anymore. They'd all served their purpose, but were pointing to this massive gathering that Jesus would make possible and secured by his death on the cross. They're all coming together. And if we didn't fast forward, we'd be here all day just making one point. So let's just jump to Revelation, okay? This is, this is, this is how it ends. And that's not even a good word for it. It should be the beginning of the end. Or actually the end of a brand new beginning. But this is verse 9 of Revelation 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice that. A great multitude that no one could number. We're pretty good at numbering these days, especially with computers. We're not perfect, but this is a number that's going to confound our abilities, aided by computers or not. And all for the purpose of doing what? What we learned from Peter. To proclaim the excellencies of God and what He's done. Who He is and what He's done. That's how the church, as far as the story of the record of Scripture ends. Which I do believe is only the beginning of eternity. With an innumerable multitude gathered as the possession of God, a people all His own. So who else other than the descendant of David, who paid for the sins against God His Father, to offer grace to anyone who would believe. Who else could say, I will build my church? No one else is qualified to say that. And he's building it right now. The grand story of creation, and we just hit a few places there that I thought most of you would be familiar with. Redemption and creation from Genesis to Revelation, the whole story starts slowly enough with a few veiled references of things that are truly significant, but we wouldn't understand in time. But I do believe if there was a place in Scripture where the screen goes from black and white to full color, you know what I'm talking about? I think it would be with the introduction of a man named Abram. That's where the story really gets interesting. I want to read to you from Genesis chapter 15. And uh, this is the last reference we'll look at. And this might be something that you have read over uh, annually with your, your reading through the Bible in a year. Genesis always gets read. Um, we get bogged down later down the road. But in Genesis 15, and it's a bizarre sounding story enough, but... This, I think, might help us tie together everything that's been said so far and be the very thing that will encourage us in the fact that we just can't lose as far as what we do because of why we do it. This is Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. 
This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now the theological ramifications of this passage are are huge. Right there in verse 6, you've got the gospel. Because no one is righteous. No, not one. There's, there's nothing that we can do to change that. We're, we're all sinners. So if it's the recipients of the message that Peter gave on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 souls were added to the church, or it's Abraham before this whole thing gets started. Anytime we have righteousness, it's only because of the imputed righteousness of one sinless Jesus Christ who paid for our sins and gives us that righteousness in exchange for our sins. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And just to think who this is, his name is Abram, which means high father. Later later it'll be Abraham, which means father of a multitude, but he doesn't have any kids at all. And it's been a while since he was promised a child. So he's still questioning, how am I supposed to see all this take place? Then we get to verse 6, and he believed the Lord, and that was counted as righteousness. But then look at verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Verse 8, but he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Stop right there. This is encouraging to me. Just as much as the passage where Jesus is talking to a man who believes and the man has sense enough to say, help my unbelief. Even Father Abraham, before he was Abraham, when he's Abram, he doesn't have any kids, who believes God enough to have that credited to him as righteousness. And the very next sentence says, "Uh, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So his faith has its weaknesses. And here we have to understand that there was more instruction given to just what we're reading here. Because we almost want to think, while we read verse 9, that he's changed the subject. Look at verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, and a female goat, three years old, and a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Almost like he sent him to the grocery store instead. But there's a purpose for this, and that's been given, though we don't see it specified. We know because of what Abraham did with these. Verse 10, and he brought him all these, cut them in half, laid each of the halves over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. What in the world can this mean? Well... We need a background in cultural studies for this particular geographical area and their customs. But this is not unlike what would typically take place when a group of people, or at least two people, would covenant with one another over something they had agreed on. This was their way of of, of forming a contract. This is a fancy one, an expensive one. It, It involves animals that are uh, sacrificed or wasted as a result of what's being done. But the idea goes something like this. They would split the animals down the spine in half. The only thing I know of to even have a visual reference point would be um, some of these expensive uh, uh, meat markets where they leave glass so you can see whole sides of beef hanging uh, in half. Or when we put on a barbecue around here and go pick up whole hog, which usually is delivered in splits. So you got half of him at a time. Well, imagine taking each half and laying them uh, spine to spine, but with a path between them. This would take place for all these animals. And what the pair, group, or delegation, and usually it would involve uh, some preamble in the beginning... And the one who's calling for this 
uh, will declare who he is and what he has done. We've got the same format here. I am the Lord who's done what? Brought you out from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. I'm the Lord. I've taken care of you. And I will give you this land. I promise. So here's the way that they cut uh, the covenant. All covenants in Scripture are cut. Even from the covenant that involved circumcision. Or what was involved in the Passover with the sacrifice and shedding of the blood of the Lamb. Or the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. They all are bloody covenants. Old covenant and new covenant. But in this case, what would happen was those parties would walk between through the path of these bloody carcasses with this in mind. This be done to us and more if either of us should cut our promise to each other. Very visual way to do this. Very graphic way to do this. And you can just imagine, it would take some time for a man to cut these animals in half. And then to shoo away the, the birds that are trying to help themselves to what's going on. Then again, all we're doing is getting dramatic here. We haven't solved anything. The tension's building. What in the world does this mean? So he said to them, bring me these things, cut them in half. When the birds came down, he drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. This would be described as acute anxiety. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain. It's a good thing to highlight. Maybe take a picture of, take it down to a sign shop, blow it up real big, put it all over your house. Know for certain, God's promises are certain, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What in the world does that mean? There's something there for Abraham, but there's something there for his descendants. And this is no less than a play-by-play of the whole exodus. Bondage in Egypt. Carrying them out. The gather in the wilderness. It's pre-written history is what it is. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That's a lot of ites. But for these folks, this was a map of the land that would be given to them. Now as far as the theological significance of God and Abram in covenant together and pieces of, of, of dead animals on the left and on the right... We're going to need some help from the author of Hebrews to know what actually took place that night in the dark after the sunset while Abram's asleep under the horror of, of the darkness of night. This is from Hebrews six thirteen through 20. Just listen, and as you hear the words said, attach them to what we've just considered. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For the people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise 
the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, what could they be? His existence and his truth. In which it is impossible for God to lie, neither can he die and stay dead. He who had fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. What is the author of Hebrews saying? What happened in Genesis means? Where was Abraham when it all took place? Asleep. He didn't walk through those pieces. God walks through those pieces alone. As if to say, I can only swear on something higher than myself. There's no such thing as anything higher than myself. So I need no other thing to swear with. I'll just tell you what I'm going to do and then do it. I will build my church. Told you it was fascinating. Might just read right over it. But the implications are huge. Why are we gathered? Why do we gather today? Why will we gather next week? Because Jesus is building his church. A conversation that started. If you, if you like to think of things dramatically as when the movie goes from black and white to color. That's about the time that God invites a man to walk out of his tent in the dark and say, Why don't you look up into the stars? And you know it would be better than what we look up. Because we've got man-made light and we've got all that stuff that pollutes the air. But this would have been crystal clear. I doubt there was a moon that light that night. And then he says, count them if you can. This will be your inheritance. This is the gathering of the group of people I have in mind. It's going to take a while. A lot of years worth of history of pain and suffering Gathering and scattering, obedience and disobedience, but I will build my church. And by the time we get to Revelation, doesn't it sound about the same? A host of people that could not be numbered from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language. So, where we are, if we open the Bible, you are here in the church age. We're in the building phase of what is a reality in Revelation. This whole thing is under construction. He's still gathering them. That's the whole book of Acts as it got started. As the word of God went out, God kept bringing people in. And as we send the word out, God keeps bringing people in. We're trying to figure out what we're going to do here. It was a little bit more visible last week when this room was packed. But if we continue to grow as we are, we're not going to fit anymore. What do we do? Well, that's an easy decision if we know why we're doing what we're doing. The reason why is because God's building His church. And if we're faithful, we're in on it. If we're unfaithful, we watch somebody else do it. But it's going to get done no matter what. God's promised on His own character. He can't lie and He can't die. Jesus will build His church. So what we're doing here... This morning, such as it is, is basically a, a, a glorified dress rehearsal for Revelation 7. Based on a fantastic story in Genesis 15. We've got some work to do. And in the coming weeks, uh, I think we're going to learn lessons we wouldn't have necessarily signed up for. But lessons that will nonetheless stretch us. We will be better because of it. God will turn this into good. If we understand God's providence, we must understand even this is from His hand. So we, we ask for His help to remain faithful. And uh, I thought I'd close this morning with something that I read. There's a lot of stuff to read. I've been reading more. I've been studying um, crash courses on uh, viruses and microbes and all kinds of things. But I came across something that C.S. Lewis wrote no less than 72 years ago in the 40s 
Uh, its title has to do uh, with living in the age of an atomic bomb. And what's interesting about this is just to replace an t- atomic bomb with uh, coronavirus. And you'll find how this really isn't much different at all. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in the atomic age? I am tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, in an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty. I like that word, novel virus. The novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was ever invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had, indeed, one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics, and we have them still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but an absolute certainty. In this, the first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we're all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts. Not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. And then he has in parentheses here, a microbe could do that. But they need not dominate our minds. I had hoped that this walk through the scriptures, Old Testament and New, might provide for us some encouragement in the fact that as long as we're faithful, we can't lose this. Because God is building, will build His church, will gather us for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Our death was, as He said, already sentenced. But Jesus came to make sure that wasn't the end of us. To make sure we had eternal life. That's what John's been on about. Believing you might have life through his name. So nothing can get in the way. The only, the only danger we have is to slide away from our faithfulness. To let it slip. To walk away or just let it drift. That God is going to build his church is certain. Whether or not we're a part of it involves our faithfulness. And faithfulness in trying times requires extra work. Nothing can get in the way other than we getting in the way of ourselves. And faithfulness is the difference. Let me pray for us. And then I'm going to read our benediction. And... uh, figure out how to dismiss and turn this thing off when we get to that point. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouraging, strengthening, soothing and comforting truth of your word. Not only that you make us promises, but that your promises cannot be broken. For you to break your promise would mean for you to be broken. For the immutable God to suffer an, a mutation. It'll never happen. It can't happen. So your work cannot fail. 
Enlist us in your work. Encourage us and strengthen us. Give us all that we need in order to do it and to do it well. To do it in a way that's pleasing to you. Lord, I ask that you bless our governing officials as they make decisions, hard ones, to do what's best for our nation. I ask that you bless our medical professionals, our doctors, our scientists, our researchers, those that are putting together tests, those that are trying to find a vaccine. Lord, bless them all. Use in them the talents you gave them. May your common grace be seen and may it sweep across not just this nation but the globe. Lord, I ask that you bless our law enforcement, our fire department, our first responders, caretakers, those folks that watch over people in rest homes as they're locked down and have no hope of seeing face to face anyone that doesn't have a good reason. Lord, bless those folks. Give them endurance. Encourage them. Do not let them be discouraged. And Lord, we ask you bless teachers and students and parents who have to figure out how to wire things up so they can continue something as simple as their school lessons. Lord, bless us all. But Lord, may you be Sovereign over the time, place, circumstances for us to be a word not only for truth and encouragement, but for the gospel for which you died. Lord, I ask that you build your church better, faster, in a more glorifying way through these things than apart from them. And Lord, in whatever way we can help, show us what to do. May we be faithful. I ask all this in your precious name. Amen. This is Romans 8, verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I miss you folks. Before too long we'll be together again. But until then, be encouraged, stay faithful. May God be with you till we meet again.